Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis in biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a podcast host. I'm a professor, a farm guy. And we're here to talk about what the new innovations are in biotechnology and how to communicate it effectively. And one of the big impediments to effective science communication in the area of genetic engineering has been the tremendous amount of misinformation and disinformation that cloud the interpretations for the average person. And there's no question that the anti-GMO movement is really winning this discussion. For almost, what, three decades now, they've polluted the public discussion with false information with vivid imagery that's entirely false. And they've been able to control a narrative that a technology is inherently evil. And we see some shifting with that. You see, you know, especially with the COVID vaccines, that uh, people are being a little more favorable towards the idea of using molecular biology and biotechnology to solve an important problem. So today we're going to talk about an interesting topic um, with Professor Robert Byrd. He's a professor of business law at the Eversource Energy Chair of Business Ethics at the University of Connecticut in Stores, Connecticut. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Byrd. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here too. Now you're a relatively new personality on my radar. I, I was looking at this class that's being offered from the University of Connecticut, shows up very well in social media, that is about genetic engineering and, uh, you know, and, and GMO, right? So can, can you start out by telling me a little bit about what that course is and who's invited to participate? Sure. This talk is called, the course is called Let's Talk GMOs. And the purpose of the online course is to provide information about GMOs to a broad audience in an accessible way. And it was produced by uh, faculty at the University of Connecticut, and it's available to every, anyone who wants to learn more about GMOs in a way that's relatively simple and controversy-free. And so we, we put this information together, myself and some colleagues, and in the hopes that individuals that really wanted to understand how GMOs work what is the purpose of GMOs and the benefits they provide can learn so much from this site and a couple of short lectures that really give the information that I think the public needs. So when you're saying GMO, you're really referring to genetic engineering of crop plants, right? That's the focus, really. They're looking at the genetic engineering of crop plants, consistent messages about the subject of GMOs. When the public looks at GMOs, they think of a broad concept of some modified food in some way or agriculture. Um, and this this online course is really meant to talk to the beginner, someone who really hasn't thought about GMOs in too much detail, but wants to learn more and wants to learn more based upon what the science is and what is the information that's actually out there that's reliable about GMOs. So the intended audience for the class is kind of the average person who doesn't know much about it, but maybe has some questions, but it's mostly about 
the science behind it, right? So maybe nuts and bolts of genetic engineering in crop plants? Sure. The basics of what genetic engineering is, um, how misinformation spreads, that's the subject of my talk, um, how to have difficult conversations about GMOs. For example, if I'm someone in agriculture and I need to communicate to the public about GMOs, how do I do so effectively? What language do I use? What terms of communication do I use? How do I approach these subjects, which can be controversial and can produce great emotions in people? Um, there are a number of people, obviously, who are scared and afraid of GMOs. And educating uh, farmers and other professionals on how to communicate can really make a useful difference. So there's a history of GMOs, how to manage dialogue, difficult conversations. There's some discussion of uh, legal aspects of GMOs and then on how mis, uh, misinformation spreads. And that's the focus of, of my part of that uh, course. That's really cool. And I, I was up there probably in 2017 or so, maybe 2018. And I gave a presentation on the communication of science, but around using genetic engineering as kind of the major straw man to beat up as we went along and really did talk about that. And it's exciting that you are actually doing a, a, a like a real course on this and that it's available to the general public. So where can people tune in to see this if they're interested? It's available to anyone. There's a low fee. It's, it's available on demand. And the website is gmo.ucon.edu. Simple enough. And you'll get Yeah, UConn, the letter U-C-O-N-N. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's right. Yeah, they, I used to hear about the basketball team from UConn being really good, and I always thought, how do they how do they recruit all those people up to Northern Canada? You know, <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's for UConn, right? Exactly. We, we decades ago the confusion was harder, but now we have actually very good basketball teams, especially women basketball, and we have excellent ice cream. We have a UConn dairy bar that if you come anywhere near stores, Connecticut. It's the experience of a lifetime to enjoy this delicious ice cream, and it's something we're proud of. Well, there you go. I actually I drove down there from Boston one night. I think, and uh, I think I flew I flew into Boston, and it was it was a really interesting ride. And I had a great time in stores. It was a really great town and a really great faculty. I had wonderful interaction there, and, and a really great time. Well, that's great to hear. I've been there since two thousand four, and I'm I'm proud to be on the faculty. So I'm glad you met some of our best and brightest. Yeah, it was good. And, but, you know, you're on faculty, but you're a professor of business law. So why are you interested in genetic engineering of crops? That's a great question. How did I possibly get involved in such a fascinating subject, right? My education is I have a JD. I have a law degree. I have an MBA. I talk a lot about contracts and corporate governance in my classes, but I also talk about business ethics. And one of the most interesting questions in business ethics is how to communicate ethical questions and ethical values to individuals in a way that an audience can understand and in order to change behavior, that they can understand and appreciate. And so what I have found is that the method of communication of business laws and business ethics to a student body, how you communicate that information is just as important as the subject itself. And through my own research, I was doing a, exploring some scholarship for my own work and I happened to stumble onto a law review article, a scholarly article published in one of the hundreds of law reviews in the United States. And since I'm a, uh, I'm a lawyer by trade, that's where I published my scholarship. And almost by chance, I found an article whose title claimed, in essence, that GMOs were linked to uh, the spread of autism spectrum disorder. And that caught my eye. 
because I thought to myself, you know, this is an unusual claim. I'd be really curious to see about the information that backed it up. And then I went down this, this rabbit hole of finding out what was beneath this claim. And the, the deeper I went, the more curious I became. And so it began from that initial interest in communication between uh, academics and society in the environment of ethics to another topic such as this one, where we're talking about communication of scientists to society. I'm also a member of the Institute of Systems Genomics at the University of Connecticut. I'm interested in ethical, legal, social questions. And um, it's, it's just fascinating work. You can look at the question of GMOs and, and, and engineering and it really matches some of the, some of the forces that happen in society. Where GMOs go, society follows. And I think it's a worthwhile uh, subject to explore. What's really interesting about the topic of genetic engineering or GMOs for, for, from an ethical standpoint is, whereas many people are saying it's unethical to do it, I've been saying for 30 years, it is unethical to not use it to its fullest potential. It's exactly the opposite of what they say. And we're stuck at this weird place in between where we're allowing some of the technology to eke through, yet some of the most humanitarian applications are stalled. That's one of the big ironies of the discipline. It's difficult, right? And there were some fundamental changes that occurred in the 1990s and the early 2000s that really uh, are fundamental to the history of GMOs. When GMOs were originally created, uh, the the audience or the really society's view of GMOs was quite positive. And they thought this was the future of food. These were, in fact, superfoods and foods that have a lot of benefits. But there were a combination of, of other forces that I think turned public opinion. First, you had some advocates that were challenging GMOs quite stridently. And second, there was other controversies that have entered the public mind. Do you remember long ago, mad cow disease? Oh, absolutely. And it was right at the same time they were releasing the first GE cotton and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Mad cow disease um, terrified right? American citizens, Canadian citizens, uh, citizens of the United Kingdom. And there was a sense that our agricultural supply chain is under threat, that our food is somehow impure and it's something of great concern. That was one issue that came. And also uh, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, how radioactive material was falling on, on, on agriculture and farms. And so the, the, the time was really right for someone who wanted to oppose GMOs to stake their claim as GMOs as harmful. The, the society was ready, concurrent societal events to help trigger this. And as a result, now we have a debate that is far more controversial than it should be because GMOs provide a lot of benefits um, to a lot of people and have great potential for future development. You're exactly right. And all of this is happening at the same time as the birth of the internet. And the people that were opposed to genetic engineering were very quick to grab that and seize it. And you can even go back to old websites from, um, I can't think of his name now, not Ronnie Cummings, but another one of the Cummings folks from Western Ontario University in Canada that were all written in very basic HTML. Um, some of the stuff from, uh, gosh, I can't even remember her name now, but she named her group ISIS, which was kind of a bad move. May <laughs> um, uh, Wan Ho or whatever her name was. She also um, was early on in, in populating the internet with really derogatory information. And the seed companies said, well, who cares? They're not our customer. The public isn't our customer. Farmers are our customer. So they refused to step into that conversation. And it really was dominated by people who uh, had a very negative approach to genetic engineering. Is that kind of what you saw as well? 
that was the trend, is that there was a small group of committed individuals uh, that were deeply suspicious of GMOs and were aggressive in their advocacy. And the result is that public opinion changed. And what we find in the United States is a kind of soft opposition to GMOs, where in Europe, in certain nations, especially in Western Europe, we find a, a deeper suspicion of GMOs, that they are somehow unsafe, unhealthy, and cause a variety of harms, right? And it is, it is easy to spread information that creates fear and creates distrust. And it's much more difficult to spread information that is accurate and builds trust, right? It takes a long time to build trust, and it's very quick to erode trust. So those that are scientists and farmers that want to use GMOs in order to benefit the public at large have a much hot, deeper, and more difficult challenge than those that would oppose it. And the internet has only accelerated that, that trend. It's very easy to make oneself public. You post on Facebook or Instagram, and you have an audience that's virtually limitless. And that's quite a challenge. And perhaps that was one of the critical points. When GMOs were at their very infancy, that was the time to establish their scientific credibility and to engage the public. And that didn't happen, right? Once a person's opinion is engaged, it's difficult to change his or her mind because an opinion is something that we hold dear to us, right? And if I am someone who uh, is against GMOs, I, I believe GMOs uh, you know, are bad, I may have friends that feel the same way. I may be on websites that agree with me. I may be on Facebook and have subgroups that talk about it. So for me to change my mind is not only a mental decision, but it may separate me from my friends. It may separate me from my online communications, and it may not make me feel good as a person. I may lose a bit of my self-identity. That's a difficult road and a difficult path to try to counter the level of misinformation because there is so much that keeps misinformation in place. Yeah, you really just outlined everything we've learned in the last decade. Once you're in that bubble... You try to preserve that bubble. You try to pres you, you actively seek out information that continues to, to reinforce your belief and even steer away from the stuff that pushes against it. And it's a very natural human tendency. And that's where we, so first on, on that side, we had all these folks who were uh, developing a very potent anti-GMO message, uh, finding people that would lock into their beliefs and do anything they could to reinforce it. And then on the other side, you had scientists who were completely ignoring the psychology and the sociology associated with these trends. And I was one of them. And my thing was, I went out there and I, I was fire and brimstone. If you don't understand the science, then I don't know what to do. Here's the science, like it or lump it. Too bad. And, you know, I didn't change a whole lot of hearts and minds for my first decade of having discussions in this area. And, uh, and so really what you're talking about is, is this idea of how we build trust. And how much is that really the factor rather than facts, in your opinion? Trust is so vitally important, right? Facts don't have a chance of, of spreading or diffusing without the building of trust between the person who communicates and the person who receives the communication, right? Individuals are overwhelmed with information, right? We have 24-hour news. We have access to so much information that perhaps our grandparents and great-grandparents never did. And now, in terms of conveying information, we need to trust. We need to build trust with our audience, right? And trust comes with uh, persistence. It comes uh, with good listening. And it also comes with compassion. Looking at those that are afraid of the consequences of GMOs, not as someone who just merely misunderstands the science, 
but rather is someone who has genuine fears, is concerned for themselves and their families, and they're worth listening to. They're worth hearing from in a respectful way. And if someone's open to a dialogue, if you can get them to that point, and you understand the perspective that they have, you can communicate to them in whatever language or whatever concerns are most important to them. So for example, if an individual opposes GMOs uh, because of religious reasons, right? Uh, one, one response or one source of discussion is that, as far as I know, major global religions do not have any strong oppositions to GMOs or the consumption of GMOs. If a person is uh, approaching GMOs from a political perspective, you know, uh, is, is someone who really distrusts government and distrusts the establishment, right? A response to that person could be the presence of GMOs in food or the absence of GMOs in food is your choice. And would you, if you want, if GMOs will be banned, that prohibits you, the consumer, from making a choice about what you want to eat. And it's the government telling you how you consume your food. Two entirely different messages for two entirely different audiences. And scientists are raised to be good scientists, right? But there's less education about communication. All communication must be customized to the audience that has received it. It requires patience, persistence, and compassion. And it takes a lot of time and effort, but the rewards are a society that is better informed and a marketplace that has foods that provide the greatest benefit for the society at large. You got it. Spot on. So I'm a scientist, but I'm married to a farmer. And so I've spent the last 10 years teaching scientists how not to be jerks and teaching farmers to get involved. Farmers just want to, you know, not engage, and and they're the most trusted and good engaged and good in, good at engaging because they're they're the most knowledgeable about what this genetic engineering does for them. And scientists understand the science inside and out. The big trick is getting these groups to engage in ways where they're listening. And they're not just uh, invalidating somebody's honest, heartfelt concerns about their family, about their health, about the environment, maybe their feelings about multinational corporations. And I totally understand all of that. And if I looked at the websites they look at, I'd feel the same way too. And so it really is that idea of explaining to them that if I was in your shoes, I'd be right there with you. So I agree with you a thousand percent. You're right on with respect to the idea of it's, it's a question of uh, listening and empathy, a question of talking about common concerns and our values. Those are the things that really move the needle. Absolutely. Finding common ground, finding common trust. And it's not something that happens immediately. And farmers can be pivotal to this discussion. Why? Think of what the concept of a farm is or, or farming is in American society, right? Lots of Agriculture is by big agribusinesses, but we still have a soft spot in our cultural heart for the small farmer, right? For the individual person or family that, you know, has, has agriculture, has pigs and chickens and cows and grain, and they raise that on a relatively small farm, work hard and sell that um, uh, to a local market. That, that is still part of our cultural DNA, as it were. And farmers who have small businesses can say, look, I'm a farmer. I work really hard. You know, the, the food I make, I, I would feed to my own family. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust, you know, this is, this is food that you can trust. This is food that you can believe in um, because I would consume it myself. And those images and the individuals who, who provide the messages can provide a different response, right? A scientist in a white coat who's using fancy words like mRNA and alleles and genes and 
you know, ribochromosomes and whatever they might be. That's, <laughs> that's just not attractive. If I hear this and I'm not a scientist, I'm just, my mind, my mind is going to glaze over. I'm going to, I'm going to start hopping on my phone and looking at Facebook. Talk in the language that people understand, of course, accompanied by complete respect for their views, right? And empathy for their personal situation. It must come from a position of respect and empathy. Without respect and empathy, the conversation cannot begin because individuals are not being treated uh, with a basic human dignity. And that's fundamental to any discussion about something that's controversial. Yeah, hold that thought because I, I want to. There's a lot of good things I want to really come back to on that at the end of today's podcast. So we're speaking with Professor Robert Bird. He's a professor of business law and the EverSource Energy Chair of Business Business Ethics. I keep wanting to say business ethics. <laughs> That's a tongue twister. Uh, at the University of Connecticut, what's the EverSource Energy Chair? The Eversource Energy Chair is an endowed chair, and let me explain that for the non-academic audiences. So what happens is that individuals or companies will donate money to universities, and that donation will be in order to serve a certain goal. And they say, I want to support a certain subject. So this chair is built to provide financial support um, to an individual who is advancing the goals of business ethics. And through my own work and research, I was uh, endowed or provided with this chair which provides um, the legitimacy of an endowed chair, the bank, the backing of a respectable name, which is a, it's a utility company in the Northeast. And also there's usually monetary backing in order to help spread the message or to advance the goals of business ethics. So often when someone asks me, what do you teach? I say business law and business ethics. They say to me, business ethics, isn't that an oxymoron? (laughs) No, very good. Right. And I have to wait. My first instinct, my first heard, I said, that's really rude. You know, I mean, I, I care about business ethics. But after a while, I said to myself, this is their perspective. This is what they hear about ethics. And this is not an opportunity to be frustrated, but rather it's a chance to enter into dialogue with something new. And I say, well, actually, business and ethics go very well together. And companies, as a general rule, have been more ethical than ever before. And our society is moving in the right direction with business ethics. I don't go too far because their eyes will glaze over. But I think business ethics is a, is a fundamentally important idea. And GMOs is wrapped up in uh, commerce, in business. So I see a natural pairing between these two important issues. Oh, you and I have got to do like one of these 24-hour marathon podcasts sometime because, <laughs> we're gonna, because I mean, we, we speak the same language and we, we haven't ever met in person. And I've only read your stuff for a couple of weeks now. But, you know, the, what you talk about, about, you know, business ethics is that you've seen such a shift. I mean, if you look at advertising and marketing where companies are going out and saying, here are our ethics. And when you used to look at... Um, truck companies, truck commercials on TV. It used to be, here's our truck, you know, going up this mountain and, you know, we're big and we're bad and we're forward. Here's 500 horses pulling you up the hill, you know, 800 pounds of towing capacity, 18 miles per gallon. It was all statistics and how big and bad the trucks were. And now it's about the umpire that called your kid out incorrectly broken down on the side of the highway and yet you're going to pull over and give them a ride home in the rain <laughs> you know you know because it's all about love right <laughs> well the views have transformed what you know uh, marketing companies see what does a vehicle communicate right does it communicate power or maybe it communicates connectivity or you know taking your kid out to a baseball game and that's the same of course with the gmos what do they communicate right is this there's a message that doesn't work right and uh, which is perhaps 
you've seen these images, right? Whenever a talk about GMOs is created, even the one that's in favor of GMOs, will have an accompanying image on the flyer of the talk. And the accompanying, accompanying image is usually a fruit, like an orange, and a bunch of needles stuck into the orange. I mean, what a horrific image to describe what GMOs can do for society. And it gives the image that somehow there's this assembly line where oranges are rushing down the assembly line and, and scandalous men and women in white coats are stabbing the oranges with hypodermic needles. And that simply doesn't happen. So the images that we convey, in addition to the words that we say, send a powerful message about whatever it is we're talking about. And it can make a real difference in conversations. Yeah, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> to stick a uh, stick a syringe into it and and transform it. So let me jump ahead. We got to take a quick break here. We already said we're talking to, to Professor Robert Bird at UConn, and we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin, and a lot of people ask how they can help the Talking Biotech podcast. The best thing you can do: help spread the word. There's simple steps to increase listenership. Now remember, my goal is simple. It's to provide good information from the experts that can help others navigate the extensive misinformation and disinformation that permeates social media and sometimes traditional media. So what can you do? Write reviews wherever you consume podcast media. Good reviews and lots of them influence the decision to listen or subscribe to a given podcast. Share the weekly podcast on your social media streams, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. It makes a huge difference when you like or retweet some of the work we do. Or support the podcast with a donation on Patreon. There have been a lot of low-dollar donors lately, and that's huge. They add up really fast. Think of a donation to put science into the ears of more listeners because every cent goes into boosting posts in social media and advertising in those spaces. It's in an attempt to cast a wider net and find new listeners. I can't tell you how many people say, I can't believe I just found this and now I have 100, well, 300 episodes to go through. So whatever you do, your efforts are very much appreciated. My interests are simply to produce exceptional media with compelling guests and fortify your ability to engage in social media and around the dinner table. I want to provide you with the content and the communication strategies to combat false information, as well as share the beautiful stories of science and technology. Plus, the guests are super interesting too. So as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. I really appreciate it. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Professor Robert Byrd. He's a professor of business law and business ethics at the University of Connecticut in Stores, Connecticut. And we're talking about a, a number of issues in science communication around genetically engineered crops. And a course where he's a participant as a lawyer and as a legal scholar talking about some of his experiences. And one of the things that really drew me to your case was this, this article that appeared uh, in, in a legal venue that was completely bogus. And you mentioned it earlier about the link between genetically engineered crops and autism. So could you remind me a little bit about where this was published and was it really refereed? 
Sure, I'll be happy to talk about the article, which I stumbled upon uh, almost randomly looking for other, other material. And so the, the article was published in a journal called The Sustainable Development Law and Policy, um, published by American University School of Law. And let's make no mistake, American University School of Law is a highly respected law school, and this is a quality journal. They produce a variety of important work. The work is well-cited. Um, the word predatory should not even enter the equation with this journal, and I'd be happy to. I'd be happy if I was able to publish there as well. So it's, it's a quite good journal, and it has a really positive influence. This piece, which they call a feature, is a very short article. It's only two or three pages. Uh, as you might know, we lawyers we really like to talk, and our articles can be twenty-five thousand to thirty-five thousand words. You know, uh, great material if you want to go to sleep, right? I, I tell my students or some of my colleagues if you want to read my article, it's excellent Nyquil. You'll read it five pages, and you'll be out cold. But this piece really captured my attention because what it claimed is that genetically engineered food was linked to a rise in the prevalence of autism. And I said, I've never heard this before. And I'm going to be an open mind and let me look. And so it was relatively brief. And there were some footnotes in the article citing the sources. And I said, I have to look at the sources. You know, let's see what the original source says about genetically modified organisms causing autism. I was fascinated. And the article basically said that, uh, that if, you're, if you have some sort of genetic predisposition, which was undefined, um, that GMO consumption has now been linked to the rise of number in autism cases. And the word linked is important. We should get back to that a little later. What does the word linked mean? A powerful <laughs> and often misused word. And so the feature was a little loose in its discussion, right? It, it misinterpreted some, well, some certain principles of laws. Um, it, it tripped over scientific fallacies, one of the most famous, as you know, of, right, the, the correlation causation problem, um, which, is a, which is a major problem, I think, in understanding scientific works. Right? There have been correlations found between iPhone sales and deaths from falling downstairs. In addition, there's been correlations between the, the per capita consumption of margarine and the divorce rate in Maine. Right? No one thinks that when people get divorced, they're more likely to eat margarine. But those two features, those two forces are correlative, meaning that they happen to go up and down together, right? The pattern follows one another, but it doesn't mean that one causes another. But this article is pretty strongly implying that if you eat, consume GMOs, you're more likely to get autism. So I looked at the source and they cited a press release. Not normally what you would cite, you usually would cite to an original source. I looked at the press release and the press release says, well, it's summarizing a study that links autism with industrial food and the environment. And the, and, the, and the press release didn't really talk about GMOs and autism. It talked about this, quote, industrial food. So already we're one step away from the claim that GMOs cause autism. And I said, my goodness, well, this press release doesn't really say GMOs cause autism. I wonder why it was relied on. Well, I know. I know what I'll do. I'll look at the article the press release summarizes, and maybe that says GMO causes autism. So I go to the next level below. And it's, it's a publication that has a pretty weighty title, right? A macro epigenetic approach to identify factors responsible for the autism epidemic in the United States. Well, that sounds pretty good. I mean, it sounds like I'm going to find my answers here. Published in the journal Clinical Epigenetics. And what the article does is actually this, this is not a study. The article wasn't like gathering data and issuing results. But what it was was a review. And it proposed a theory, an idea of how um, uh, industrial food or high fructose corn syrup specifically would be connected to autism. And the, the proposal that it makes is fairly complex, but it doesn't talk about GMOs and any linkage from GMOs to autism. It just gives this multifaceted idea where if A causes B and if B causes C, then maybe D will cause E. So I still haven't found a link between GMOs 
and autism? Well, it looks like I'm not going to find an answer, but I'm going to look at this article. And I took a look at one of their citations where they link two elements together, where one causes another and there was some relation between the two and they were using this as an argument. I don't want to get too complicated. But what happened is some of the source that this review cited, the source actually contradicted the point that the review made. <laughs> even more curious. So what we have is an article that was an actual study with data that said, if you consume high fructose corn syrup, there's certain effects that did not happen, right? The review, which I just talked about, um, says if you, cons if you consume high fructose corn syrup, which is really just fancy word for sugar, right? That these bad effects do happen. And then it talks about a link between autism and, and, and food. And then we have a press release that talks about autism and industrial food. And then we have an article that talks about GMOs causing autism under certain conditions, this law review article. And then citing that law review article was a blog that just said GMOs cause autism, period. And so what you have every step along the way is it's like a game of telephone. And all along the way, the words get miscommunicated. You have a study, a review, which carelessly cites a study. You have a press release, which doesn't perfectly accurately uh, summarize the review. You have a law journal that doesn't summarize the press release. And you have a blog that doesn't accurately uh, summarize or capture the law journal. And the result is you go from an evidence-based practice to something that's completely untrue in three to four citations. It's pretty amazing. Are these things peer-reviewed? This is a law reviews. They have a unique system. They, they're actually run by students, but what they have is an editorial board of faculty. And those faculty in, in many law schools will supervise and keep an eye on the students. What the students do well and that other um, journals do not do is they will individually check every single citation for accuracy. And so when we have a footnote, we have maybe 300, 400 footnotes in each article. And each citation has, or footnote has 300 or 400 citations. So they'll go in and look at hundreds and hundreds of sources to make sure that they're accurate. And so that's the method that has been used in law journals, I mean, for over a century. So the, some of the greatest law reviews out there, right? The Harvard, the Yale Law Journal, the Harvard Law Review, the NYU Law Review, Stanford Law Review, the, most of these will follow the similar system where students are involved in the intake, they're involved in the evaluation, and these are some of the very best students in law school. But there is always a backstop. There's always a supervisory board that is there in case something goes wrong. And the analogy I like to give is, think of like a corporation. You have the CEO and the COO and the CLO, the chief executive, but you also have the board of directors, right? The faculty are the executives. I mean, the students are the executives. They run the day-to-day, -day, and the faculty are the board of directors that oversee to make sure everything works. And, and law journals have been pretty successful. You know, they influence public policy. They're cited by courts. Um, the idea of sexual harassment came from a law review article and a legal scholar. And so we, we see these law review articles having a real impact, especially when they, they do some really good work. Yeah, but here's an example where the article itself was based on rather flimsy foundation and really misinterpreted information that came before it. The problem is, is that now it's published. And so where did this go forward? So who cited this article and then expanded on this idea that genetic engineering or plants, ingredients from genetically engineered crops cause autism? Sure. What made this chain of citation interesting, right? It's ordinariness. And it's ordinariness is that we have from A to B to C to D 
relatively simple chains and citation. And this is not an article written by, say, Andrew Wakefield, right? That, that, that study published in The Lancet that talked about, that really sparked this, this autism uh, vaccine movement. Um, this article, what it is, is it's incremental toward the conversation. And that's what makes it so interesting because it's been cited in a few places. Uh, someone, uh, an Italian student cited it in their graduate thesis or dissertation. Um, there's, a, there's a software engineer in Korea that cited it in their blog. Um, there is a couple of places where this article has been put on a list of research that supposedly shows that GMOs are harmful in some way. And so articles like this, and this is where really the devil is in the details. Articles like this create this incremental effect that the anti-GMO movement is scientifically based and rigorously backed by scholars in a variety of disciplines. And that happens slowly, carefully, over a period of months, over a period of years. And so it contributes to that discussion and it just adds to the list. And you can look at this article and the, and the author, the author was a student at the time when, when she wrote the article. I, I haven't you know, followed up. I imagine she's practicing law somewhere. But what happens is, is articles like this have this incremental effect. And that's where the real influence of changing public opinion occurs, drip by drip, article by article, citation by citation. Good information gets clouded and bad information comes to the fore, resulting in strong public opinion against GMOs. Yeah, I tried to figure out where she is now. And I wanted to talk to her and say, you know, why did you do this? And do you still stand by it? Because it, it really would be interesting. But well, let me go backwards a little bit, because you mentioned the word linked, which is one of my favorite, what I call weenie words, yes. because it, it is a word that allows you to suggest there is a strong association when linked, like what can linked mean? That's a good question. And there are a bunch of words that can be used like this and be manipulated. When a journalist uses linked or maybe uh, someone's writing an article uses linked, it's not a scientist. The word linked can mean almost anything. It can mean the most tenuous of connections that are not, um, that do not say anything that's worthy of further discussion. Or it can mean an absolute connection, an absolute causal relation between A and B. And link, the word linked is a catchword. Right? It's a word that doesn't require much effort to use, and it is, of course, um, can be quite harmful. And so there's words like linked that, that, that what a common reader would say is, oh, if, if A is linked to B, clearly A causes B, and that's not the case. And so scientists, science communicators, and journalists alike have to be very careful of these words and not misuse them. Linked is one example. Um, the word hypothesis, which has a significant um, scientific meaning. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a proposal that's backed by information and, and hard work. But the word hypothesis in common parlance is really a, just, I have a guess. I've got an idea, right? Another example is the word significant, a significant connection between two variables. The word significance is really important to statisticians and scientists. But the meaning of the word significant, it just means something that exists, some, you know, has some meaning, undefined meaning, very casual. And perhaps one of the worst words, the most frustrating words, is theory, right? Yep. We do have theories. Theories can be very well backed by evidence, right? We do have a, a theory of evolution, for example. We have a theory of gravity. Uh, but the, to the casual reader, the word theory can just be interpreted as a speculation, a mere guess, not really backed by anything. And I've had this encountered a number of times talking to students. Well, that's just a theory. 
right? Well, the theory of evolution is also a theory, and so is the theory of gravity. So these words can create impressions in the public that scientists and other experts would not normally see. And that's why science communication is so very important. Those who communicate science to the public are really the handmaidens of knowledge. They are the middlemen between uh, the scientists and the expert and the broader community. And they're vitally important in making sure the correct information gets out and that the public understands accurate science rather than misinformation. You're exactly right. And I, and I love this conversation because for me, when I use the word, I don't mean, I never would use the word linked, but I would say correlated with. And that would automatically say that I'm leaving out the possibility of causality at this point because there's no evidence to demonstrate causality. But somebody who's trying to do something nefarious, like generate a causal association between, um, I almost say glyphosate, but glyphosate or genetic engineering and autism would not, would say linked implying direct link. Mm -hmm. And, and so this is why it's really important for us to speak with such precision, but also call out these places where people are using languages that is inappropriate or, you know, wiggly language to be able to bolster a false claim. And then that's exactly what we see in this particular article. That's right. That's right. And so I would think of the language as susceptible to misinterpretation, right? Or susceptible to misunderstanding. Um, and, and, and words matter, right? So I would avoid words like wiggly because that implies negative intent. That implies that someone is engaging in disinformation, right? If I engage in disinformation, I want to mislead you. And some people do that. But misinformation is more benign. And uh, maybe it's the positive, the optimistic nature that I have. But I always I assume misinformation first and only disinformation if the evidence presents itself. So these are vulnerable words. These are words that are highly malleable and we need to be careful about. Now, you mentioned some words, right? Um, correlation, right? That's a, that's a fairly fancy word. And not, you know, not everyone knows what correlation means. And so when I talk about correlation and causation, I give those examples. Like the one I talked about, the divorce rate in Maine and the U.S. per capita consumption of margarine. Right? Those rise and fall very closely together. And so I'm talking to my students, I'll say, um, did you know that the, I showed the chart, I said divorce rate in Maine and the consumption of margarine, look how close they are. Clearly they cause, they, they, they're causal for one another. One causes the other. And then they'll say, no, that's not true. I mean, they're, they're totally apart. And I say, that's exactly right. They only have a connection between one another. Just because something is on the increase and something else is on the increase at the same time doesn't mean that there's a causal effect, right? One example could be, is I haven't looked at this, but an interesting question is, is the rise of the organic food industry and organic food sales, is it in any way correlated, not causative, but correlated to the rise of the anti-GMO uh, anti movement? And, and that's something that would be interesting to find out, right? And if it was, that would be correlative, not causative. So that, that's an important distinction. And you know what? A lot of these solutions, you can't have them occur in a day or a week or a month. There's, there's quick solutions, you know, information like this Let's Talk GMOs course. And there's also long-term solutions, right? Having an education system that treats our students to be skeptical readers, that treats our students to be cautious readers in an, an environment where information is flooded. So how do you convince someone or how do you persuade someone that GMOs are, are safe, are healthy, and help build a better society? It starts in the first grade. It starts at the very lowest grades. When, you, when, when students receive information and they're able to interpret that information and having them 
believe and, and trust in science and, and respect how the scientific method and also um, be able to interpret what is good information and what is not. It's not easy. It's very easy to build a house and it's, it's not so, it's very, it's very hard to build a house, but it's, it's very easy to take that house down. And the same goes with information. Extremely well put. Uh, it, what you're really saying is we need to be treating, we need to be teaching critical thinking. And, and that's really where we're at. Uh, my favorite correlation is um, Nicholas Cage movies and uh, bathroom shower accidents, bathtub and shower accidents seem to correlate together. So whenever I hear there's a new movie coming out from Nicholas Cage, I'm always a little more cautious before I jump in the shower. Um, <laughs> you know, you know I, why risk it, right? Um, but I don't, I don't want to die an ironic death, you know. Um, so we, we've been going through this, and this is really good. And here's the question that that maybe you have to speculate on a little bit. But, you know, you've looked at the anti-GMO movement, the trends that happen in terms of the fear that's used, syringes in food. How much of an overlay or overlap do you see with the way that the same trends between fear, distrust, um, a group promoting a false agenda, using misinformation and disinformation, how much does that match with what we've seen in the COVID space? That's an interesting connection, right? So the discussion, one can, you can, you can propose that perhaps the discussion of COVID-19 and the suspicion of, of COVID-19 in some quarters that discussion began many, many years before the pandemic ever occurred, right? We were having discussions about science and, and, and scientific questions. Consumers were becoming increasingly skeptical about uh, scientific knowledge and, and what scientists say is, is either scientifically safe or unsafe, right? And that's from the proliferation of misinformation and disinformation. And so what we had is we have a citizenry that is primed to be suspicious of scientists and experts, and is also primed to be receptive for emotion-grabbing misinformation and disinformation through social media and other spaces. Right? Communicating scientific truth is hard. Communicating scientific untruth is easy. It's much easier to lie than it is to tell the truth. Because if you are, are telling something, saying something that is false, you don't need to be backed by facts. You don't need to be subtle. You, you can use emotions to inflame and to scare. And so what we see in GMOs was really is the precursor to what we see in um, uh, involving COVID-19. And one of these two articles I wrote looked at the vaccine autism connection. And that article was published just before um, the, the pandemic really kicked in. So um, I was unwittingly lucky, right, in talking about such an important issue. And what many of the ways to respond to these are the ones, of course, that we've discussed, right? Patients right? Respect, right? And compassion for your audience and understand why your audience thinks the way it does. And my goodness, we need this scientific communication right now because people, people's lives are on the line, right? Americans are dying every single day from, from COVID-19. And there are many Americans that believe that it is either not a significant risk or that it is perpetrated in some way that it is, is somehow the scientists are lying, right? That Dr. Fauci is not telling us the truth. So you can see a number of information parallels between the anti-GMO movement and the anti-vaccine movement. And I write in my article that someday those movements may merge into a kind of uh, integrity or purity movement. The sense of, you know, trust no one but yourself. Believe no scientists. Find your own information and research wherever you may find it. 
and that and that conspiracy theories and conspiratorial uh, beliefs they're the ones that rise to the top rather than the well thoughtful and and well-meaning scientific research and that's a scary environment and that's a scary future how do we as academics fight that academics need to be involved right and there's a variety of ways that, that academics can get involved first academics get out of your labs get out of your offices you need to talk to non-scientists scientists need to talk to ordinary people with ordinary concerns and when they ask questions that belie their level of scientific understanding respond with patience respect compassion that's how communications work and i think scientists have a real difficult problem with that at least some do because we're you know scientists and scholars we're trained on complexity we're trained on nuance and for scientists as you i'm sure you may know there's a lot of pressure to obtain grants for your university and so scientists have to work on grants they've got to publish articles they don't have time to go out there and communicate and that's another underlying problem is that scientists who work hard on creating new knowledge are not sufficiently incentivized to go out there in the world and communicate that knowledge to the general public right where do they get pr uh, promotion and tenure and more grants and more prestige it's in the lab right it's not speaking in a town hall about the concerns of gmos or covid-19 and then that's that's a major that's a major force that needs to happen. Academics need to get involved, and the incentives for academics need to be to get involved need to be present as well. Well, you know, high marks for your administration for allowing you to do this course. Um, many schools have told their faculty back out of these conversations, mine included. I mean, I am forbidden to do this podcast as an agent of my university. Uh, despite the fact that we're going on 2 million downloads, 308 episodes, whatever it is, um, I have to have a disclaimer that says this is not a product of the University of Florida. This is, you know, me on my own time, my own equipment, me paying for it, you know. And other schools have had the same thing. Other faculty at UC Davis, Cornell, have been told back out of these conversations. Yet others have been, have been encouraged. So uh, Purdue, really good. Um, you know, that's probably, you know, because their president is uh, on fire about genetic engineering and, and the good things it can do. Um, clearly at UConn, you guys have been encouraged as a land grant to step into these conversations. But at the same time, we've got folks at MIT who are uh, staff scientists who are publishing on behalf of the University of MIT the link between glyphosate and, or, and uh, autism, the link between vaccines and autism, the link between the COVID uh, vaccines and problems. So, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an endless battle and we have to just engage anyway. And you know, I don't know what the easy way to do this is other than we have to encourage academics to step into this conversation and realize this is a marathon and not a sprint. Is that pretty much where we're at? This is a marathon and not a sprint. And it's a long marathon that, that requires a lot of patience and, and being able to communicate. And what universities can do if they want to encourage this message is to reward scientists that will go out into the public and communicate this information. It needs to be not only our our clinical and our outreach scientists who do vitally important work, but it must also be our research scientists, the ones that have uh, been promoted to full professor, you know, the, one of the highest ranks at a university, the ones that are tenured, long-standing long employees that have those credentials, stepping out of their labs and speaking to the public and becoming engaged. Universities have to encourage that and they should reward that 
when uh, uh, faculty submit their annual reviews or they come up for promotion or come up for tenure, right? We don't want to have, we don't want our, our scientists to abandon our labs altogether, right? They're, they're already so very busy. Scientists are battling for, um, for these grants, for publicly funded grants, and those grants aren't getting any larger. And so there's the pie is shrinking and the competition is increasing, but this needs to be a part of the conversation. We cannot simply talk to ourselves. We need to talk to the public at large and how we talk to the public is critical. And that's why science communicators and those who are in public relations and, and other forms of communication can be pivotal in ensuring that scientists put their best foot forward, that the message they want to give is the message that is received, right? Which means not talking down to your audience, not using extraordinarily complex gar jargon, right? And there's things that, you know, you and I may not see as jargon that an audience might, and that may be put offing, right? When, you, when we use words that a person cannot understand, that can be insulting to say that we're, there's an implicit message that we somehow know more than them, that they should just listen to us because we're really smart. And that's a message that should never be provided in a meeting between scientists and the public. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Universities have to get involved. They have to create the incentives for scientists to act and to be out there. And good universities are doing that. Um, I, I feel at the University of Connecticut that I've had this, the opportunity to write these articles and publish. And this Let's Talk GMOs um, site with this, with this on-demand course. Um, I'm glad to, to be here and be able to be a part of that in some small way. That's huge. It, it really is. I've had other universities invite me to talk about how do we establish these programs here and how do we get faculty more engaged. Um, and that's great. You know, this is a this is a trend that's moving in the right direction. But unfortunately, a lot of universities are saying we don't want to be in the controversy. And, you know, especially the ones that are trying to seek these high positions in, in rankings, they don't want a single article uh, that's negative, even if it's not true. And so it's really a, it's really a battle. It's but bottom line is is we got to play the you know the uh, I guess you'd say the Willy Wonka game here. Do what's right all the time, even if it's going to go against the perception, because history's the judge here. And those of us who've been advocating for genetic engineering for 20, 30 years, everything we said is right. The story's still the same, and the folks who were the critics are 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 gone and they're falling off. So right now is the time for the th efforts like yours um, to, to step into this. So could you tell us again one more time about, you know, where is this class? When does it start? And that's the other big one. I couldn't find that online. And uh, or is it strictly just an online course that you consume as you go? Or, you know, tell me a little bit more about that course. Sure. So the Let's Talk GMOs online course, as mentioned, is available at gmo.ucon.edu. It is a course that is available on demand. It has eight online modules that have instructors from UConn, and the fee is under 50 bucks. Um, such a deal, right? Courses at a university that are full length cost much more than that. And it's one that is informative and rewarding. And I think people that come to the course with an open mind and listen to what the course has to say will learn a lot about GMOs, and it may change uh, how they eat and how they view their, their kitchen table for a long, long time. So it's certainly a worthwhile endeavor to be involved. I'm happy to be involved in the course. I encourage anyone who's listening um, to register and, and take the course. It's something that can be a great benefit. Very good. And you get some sort of, uh, do you get like a certificate or CEU credits at the end? I believe there is some mark of completion. Uh, it may be a certificate. It's not a degree or anything formal like that, but there is some mark of completion that occurs. Um, I would defer to the administrators of this program for what, what the gra quote, graduation looks like, right? 
Um, so it should, always helps, but it's the knowledge that really counts. And I hope people that go to seeking the knowledge and they'll find it uh, valuable that can last, value that lasts a long, long time. Well, that's a great point to end on. So, you know, uh, Professor Robert Burke, thank you for being on the Talking Biotech podcast. I really appreciate you joining us and best wishes in that course. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Join the course. Learn a little bit more. Get involved. Um, make their numbers go through the ceiling. You know, it's another way in which we can expand our knowledge in a really critical area of biotechnology, but also learn a little bit about the communication. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day. I've said for 20 years now, it's about moving innovation to application with communication. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Show us a little love on Patreon or reviews on iTunes or wherever you consume podcast media. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.